Our series is Salvation Belongs to the Lord, Faith in Times of Trouble. We'll be looking at Psalm 8 this morning, so you can go ahead and turn your Bibles there. And I want to encourage you with the knowledge and declaration that Jesus is the answer. So, spoiler for the end of the sermon, um, it's about Jesus. But so, Jesus is the answer, and so when we go through our text this morning, we're going to be seeing, already knowing, that Jesus is the end of Psalm 8. What we will examine is how Jesus fulfills Psalm 8. And so, no matter where you fail or where you succeed, you can rest assured that Jesus has covered your failure and... He has supplied your successes. Jesus is the answer. You can go ahead and note that in Psalm 8, we're presented with a very idealistic psalm, okay? The psalms leading up to Psalm 8, albeit or removing Psalm 1, with the hope of being planted by streams of living water. The water is Jesus. You are the tree planted by the stream. That was me preaching Psalm 1, so you get two sermons today. So, so our Psalms, 2 through 7, are all, you can just you know, skim through your Bible real quick, look at the first verse of each of those Psalms. You have cries out to God, okay? David and other Psalm writers are being persecuted, chased, they're distressed, they're in anguish. And then we have Psalm 8. And as you can see, again, just glancing at the psalm, it opens and closes in quite a different way than what we've seen in the book thus far. David is declaring truths of God's majesty, but at the same time speaking about man as if man is succeeding in his role as the image of of God. We'll talk more about the image of God as we go. And for any of us that are unfamiliar or unsure with that idea, the image of God, we can look to our catechism questions for help that we usually do for responsive readings. So this is question number four, and it reads, how and why did God create us? Now I get to read the whole thing this time. You don't have to read with me. But God created us, male and female, in his own image, why? To know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. The catechism question goes on to say that it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. And Genesis 1.27 is where we draw this truth, this catechesis from. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So again, we could say that Psalm 8 almost reads as if mankind is successful in his responsibility to know him, to love him, to live with him, and to glorify him. And so I would ask, Cedarview, are we successful 
in those responsibilities? Are you successful in those responsibilities? The unfortunate answer is what? Two letters, yeah, no. So as we read Psalm 8, it begs the question, if God is majestic and all creation is the work of his hands, what is man? What is man? And of course, the answer is Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to be asking you who the answer is multiple times this morning, and the answer is always Jesus, okay? So I'm taking you guys back to Sunday school. I know we've had Sunday school canceled for a while due to the virus, and so I'm going to give you a little bit of Sunday school while we preach this morning. And so if God is majestic and all creation is the work of his hands, what is man? The answer is Jesus. We'll be looking to explain how Jesus is the answer as we go through Psalm 8. And so if you would, pray with me, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that Psalm 8 is too good for us. Thank you that Psalm 8 was one of many prophecies that was fulfilled by Christ. Thank you for David and his faithfulness to pen both scarring (laughs) evil things that he's done and still crying out to you. And then we have from David this psalm where he simply praises your majesty and he has to reconcile who is he and what is man before your majesty. Thank you that we know the answer is Jesus. And Father, be with us as we learn how Jesus is the answer here. And so our theme this morning um, is majesty of God. The majesty of God and the works of his hands are reconciled with man through Jesus Christ. The majesty of God and the works of his hands are reconciled with man through Jesus Christ. Now, the structure of Psalm 8 is a bit foreign to us. We're used to using rhyme um, to sort of structure our poetry, right? Um, So, for example, um, we're familiar with roses are red, violets are blue, I want to go to bed, and so do you, right? So that uses an A, B, A, B rhyme scheme, right? Basic of basics for poetry. Now, what we're going to be looking at in Psalm 8 is the David and other biblical writers, they don't really care about rhyme quite as much as we do, but they structure their ideas, okay? So whatever the idea of a line is, that's going to be the A-B-A-B, all right? And so what we're looking at in this psalm is called a chiasm. A chiasm structures ideas of a passage like a mirror. So it's going to go A, B, yeah, we see it on the, on the board, um, God is majestic in all the earth, A, B, C, B, A, okay? So it reflects at the central point, which is for this one, point C. Look 
always, when there is a chiasm, you don't, there's not going to be a quiz, you don't need to remember that word, but whenever you see this structure, look at the middle, okay? The most important point is going to be the one set in the middle, because as you can see, the other points, A and B, serve as a sort of frame to point at C, okay? And so the structure of the verses that I'm going to be preaching to you, I'm going to go in order, one, two, three, but the references are going to be as you see. So point one is going to be verses one and nine. Point two is going to be verses two and three, and then six through eight. You understand. So now that we have that out of the way, um, we can go ahead and get started. As you can see, our references and points are on the board. God is majestic in all the earth. If you're taking notes, our first point is God is majestic in all the earth. Our second point is the works of God's hands. And then our third point will be what then is man? As we are presented with these ideas, we must ask and answer the question, what is man? Beholding God's majesty and considering man's responsibility, we have to figure out who is David talking about in Psalm 8? As I have already said, the answer is... Yeah, I got a little Jesus over there. So... Um, let's set our minds on things above, and we'll go into our first point. God is majestic in all the earth. Psalm 8 and verse 1, and then I'll read verse 9, which is a repeat of the first part of 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Majesty is a word in Hebrew that can mean mighty, magnificent, nobility, Lord, okay? So majestic, majesty is a word referring to royalty, to kings, and who is the king of kings but God himself. And so majesty is a word of kingship and rule. David is declaring that throughout all of the earth, the name of the King of Kings, of the Lord of Lords, is known. But does all the earth see and bow to God's kingly authority today? Does all the earth bow at the majesty of God today or yesterday when David wrote this? Psalm 8 seems to be looking ahead to the day where the Psalm 8 man, we'll call him, has succeeded in his job of imaging God's majesty on earth. This is the tension of Psalm 8. So how can we withstand the weight of being the image of God? Who will bring rebellious humanity to God's kingly authority? How can I possibly image, reflect his majesty in all the earth. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the answer. Jesus today sits at the seat of power, the majesty's right hand. The majesty of God and the works of his hands are reconciled with man through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect image of God because he is God himself. Psalm 8 must be prophetic because we know that God's majesty is not recognized in full. There are still those who rebel against God's majesty and who will bring them to their knees. David tells us that it is truly a man who will accomplish this task. But who is the Psalm 8 man? We know the answer is Jesus, so let us continue, and we'll see Jesus bear the weight of God's work in his hands. The works of God's hands, verses 2 and 3 and 6 through 8. And so where there's two perspectives being used there, 2 and 3, we're going to see God establishing his rule, okay? God's majestic rule over creation. And then 6 through 8, we're going to see God's rule that rule that was established, given over to mankind. So, first, God's majestic rule over creation. Let's read 2 and 3. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy of the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Now we have my babes and infants here this morning that you can hear. And God is establishing something that seems uh, counterproductive, right? After setting the scene of God's majesty, we're presented with a strange example of God's rule over the work of his hands. Now I wouldn't consider myself a particularly intimidating man, okay? Uh, but if someone attacked me, I feel as though I could get beaten up long enough that my family could run away, you know? And so I'm not the most intimidating guy. And if someone was coming to attack my family, it would be a strange move on my part as an act of intimidation to say, hey, you better back up. My children think I'm awesome. My babies love me. What? And, you know, proceeds to punch me in the mouth. So this is a strange move, right? Out of the mouths of babies, out of those cries that you're hearing from the back of the sanctuary, God has established his power. He has stilled the enemy. He has defeated the enemy with the cries of these infants. So what is the weight of God's claim in Psalm 8-2? Obviously, it's not the silly example that I gave, right? God's not being foolish in establishing his praise here. David, though, who wrote Psalm 8, knows a little bit of something about God using that which is weak to defeat the strong. What is the story that 
All of us are taught as children. David defeats, starts with a G, Goliath. Man, we're getting some good responses now today. So David and Goliath, right? So David, just some kid that randomly wrestles with like bears and lions. Okay. Anyway, some kid David just runs up to this giant Goliath and just chunks a rock at him. Kills him, right? Now we see that God pleases himself in using those who should not win to win. Why? Because if a baby cooing and crying defeats the enemy, who do you think is going to receive the credit? Probably not Rose. But the God who established his power in the cries of infants. David rests upon God's promises to re to preserve his rebellious people and to bless all nations. And so we gain more insight into the question, if God is majestic and all creation is the work of his hands, what then is man? In Matthew 21, 12 through 14, Jesus famously flips the tables, okay? Um, and so we like to use that today for, like, you know, justifying our sassiness, right? So if we're, feeling, if we're feeling ourselves and we're just, we're real upset about something, we'll just say, Jesus, flip tables, right? And so that's really the extent of how we use uh, Matthew 21, 12 through 14, typically. But in the scene, in the story, we see he is flipping tables because there are these men who are extorting the sacrificial system. They're profiting by selling sacrifice items, we'll just call it that, sacrifice items to those who should be receiving them for free, okay? He's taking advantage of the poor. And Jesus says that these men are making his temple a den of robbers. Following this, Jesus welcomes the needy, the sick, the poor, the lame, and he heals them for free. And then we see, following this, the, the Fulfillment, a partial fulfillment, we'll say, of Psalm 8, 2. So Matthew 21, 15, and 16, I'll read. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were upset. They were indignant. And they said to him, do, do you hear what they're saying, Jesus? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read Psalm 8? Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? So we see Jesus fulfilling Psalm 8 too. Seeing this, the children of the temple, seeing Jesus healing and flipping these tables because they were taking advantage of the poor, the children unwittingly do something that went down in, like, they are a part of God's salvation story. They fulfilled Psalm 8, too. But not only that, they witnessed the fulfillment of Isaiah 56, 7 as well. 
So Isaiah 56, 7, I'll read, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, the temple. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. There will not be any barred from entering this house of prayer, this temple. If God is majestic and all creation is the work of his hands, what then is man? What is the answer? Jesus. And praise God that Isaiah 56, 8, which is where we will see the first hint of God expanding the role and responsibility of his image bearers. So Isaiah 56, 8 follows this fulfillment from Matthew 21. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those that are already gathered. Now that may just sound like Bible speak to you. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what Jesus is referencing in his fulfillment. He fulfilled Isaiah 56, 7 by flipping tables, but he will fulfill Isaiah 56, 8 at the cross. Those who have not yet been gathered are any of us here, which I think is all of us, that are not Israelites. We who are Gentiles are those who are yet or were yet to be gathered. In Matthew 21, Jesus declares himself to be the Psalm 8 man. Jesus claimed himself to be the man who brought joy to the house of prayer from Isaiah 56, 7. And as we will see when we conclude, Jesus also fulfills Isaiah 56, 8 in bringing many outcasts to the promise of Israel. Now, just because I said the word conclude, we still have another point, so don't get too excited. But the majesty of God and the works of his hands are reconciled with man through Jesus Christ. And so God's rule given to man, verses 6 through 8, I'll read verses 6 through 8, and you can read along with me. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Super side note, it's interesting that biblical writers would have understand like currents in the ocean. Um, just, yeah, they didn't have scuba gear back in the day. And so it's fascinating that they are given this insight into God's creation. Anyway, this strength established by God in the mouths of infants causes David to look up at the stars in the sky. David looks up in awe as many of us, especially those not around city lights, have done, dazzled by the sheer quantity of stars in the sky. Have any of you at any point, you know, in childhood attempted to start counting stars? Like I've, I've 
done that. And I got bored pretty quick because I realized I have, you know, I like I've counted this many stars, like when I'm looking up in the sky and there's still the, the, the rest of the sky. Is, ah, okay, I'm going to go do something else now. So my attention span was too short, but we know that we cannot number the stars in the sky. And as David beholds this wondrous sight, the stars in the sky, he must reckon with the fact that God placed responsibility and dominion of this creation, not just the stars in the sky, but everything here on earth upon the scrawny shoulders of image bearers like you and me. Genesis 1.28 reads, And God blessed them. So this is 1.27. We have the image of God, right? We're made in the image of God. This is immediately following. Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Does that sound familiar? It should, because it sounds just like Psalm 8, 6 through 8. How do we reconcile God's majesty with what we know about mankind? Do we deserve this honor placed upon our shoulders? Have we, are we, or will we successfully reflect God's image in ourselves? These are the questions we are left asking in the text. Because as we recall Genesis 1.28, we must also recall Genesis 3.6, which reads, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and a total loser, and didn't stop her, and he ate. Seeing God's majesty and the responsibility of image bearers, we look to our left, we look to our right, and then we are forced to look above. Why? We desperately cry out, what is man, God? What is man? We can't bear the weight of this burden, the weight of this responsibility upon our shoulders. Because honestly, everything we know about ourselves and everything we know about our, our mankind falls short of God's majesty. If God is majestic and all creation is the work of his hands, what is man? So the answer is Jesus right? Jesus is succeeding in man's responsibility to be fruitful and multiply. He is succeeding in imaging God through subduing the earth, and the dominion of Jesus Christ has no end. Jesus is the truest image of God because he is very God himself. Jesus is the answer. The majesty of God and the works of his hands are reconciled with man through Jesus Christ. And so what then is man? We'll be looking at verses 4 and 5. We know that Jesus is the answer because of the apparent problem found in Psalm 8. 
Man is nothing, and yet he is honored. How can this be? So we'll look at Psalm 8, 4, and 5. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So how do you reconcile the majesty of God and the works of his hands with man? Through Jesus. Yeah, we're getting better. We're getting better. We're going to keep working on it a little bit. Um, But so Hebrews 2, 6 through 8. So this is where what we heard read starts to come into play. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 first. It has been testified somewhere. What is man? The somewhere is Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You make him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Again, this should sound familiar. It's what we just read. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The author of Hebrews is hitting right the nail on the head, the exact problem of Psalm 8, right? Subjection has been given. All things are in subjection to this Psalm 8 man, and yet we don't see the majesty of God in all the earth. How can God's name be majestic in all the earth while yet man continues to sin. Look at verses 9 through 11 in Hebrews 2. But we see him, we know is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely who? Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting. This is how the author of Hebrews concludes. He draws this conclusion from the fulfillment of Psalm 8, okay? So verses 10 and 11. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should, be, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Those who are sanctified and he who sanctifies are made one. How can man be both unworthy and worthy at the same time? We are unworthy image bearers, and yet we have been redeemed and made one with Jesus Christ, the truest image of God and very God himself. We who are unworthy have been cleansed and united with the only one who is worthy. Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10 reads, In him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Jesus as a plan. Why? Why did God do this? As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. It is the plan for the fullness of time for God's church, for us brothers and sisters to call upon he who sanctifies us and glory in the fact that we are one with him. If God is majestic and all creation is the work of his hands, what is man? Jesus is the answer. The majesty of God and the works of his hands are reconciled with man through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the psalmate man who succeeds and supplies where we have failed, are failing, and will continue to fail. Jesus is the exact imprint of God and very God himself. Jesus subdues the works of God's hands because he is the very hand of God who worked. And these have been reconciled with man because Jesus became man himself so that he could call us brothers and become one with him. Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection was, is, and always will be God's intended goal in making Adam and Eve. Through Jesus, we see the true image of God, the fulfillment of the image of God. And in Jesus, we have become one source, one people, one body with this Jesus himself. It is through our God, Jesus Christ, that we understand what it is to be human. And so, Christian, if Jesus has succeeded in all your failures and supplied all your victories, what do you do now? How do you respond to this truth? Consider Genesis 128 again and how Jesus interacts with the law. He did not abolish the law, rather he what? He fulfilled it, and then he goes on to expand the law. Look at Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Most of us are familiar. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And not only that, he takes what was external and holds us accountable to our hearts as well. He expands the law. He expanded the expectation of the law. He did not reduce it. Likewise, consider how the Bible unfolds as we depart this morning. Consider it said in this way, you have heard it said. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the animals, to summarize. Genesis 1.28, but I say to you now, Jesus 
who was given all authority, then says to his church, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus has not abolished our responsibility to be fruitful and multiply. The exact opposite. We heard from when I preached in Psalm 127 that children are a reward, a heritage from the Lord. But he has expanded our responsibility to the responsibility of making those children and others baptized disciples of Jesus who observe God's commands. So leave here this morning encouraged and challenged. Encouraged to know that Jesus fulfilled Psalm 8 on our behalf and he bears the weight of being the perfect image of God for you. And leave here challenged to know that our champion and savior Jesus Christ who fulfilled in making disciples of your neighbors. We, ha- we must follow our champion and follow the commission that he has given us. And if at any point this week you feel as though you are falling short of God's majesty, falling short of God's image, falling short of that which Jesus is for you, know that even in your greatest failures in Genesis 128, even in your greatest failures in making disciples of all nations, Matthew 28.20 tells us, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Psalm 8 man is with his church always to the end of time. Go this week encouraged that the weight of responsibility has been removed from you and challenged that the freedom of obeying God's commands, the life-giving law, has been given to you as an opportunity. Pray with me.